Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the tectonic shifts in geopolitics happening right under our feet, the long, slow decline of the U.S. empire and the neoliberal order, the role of the war in Ukraine in hastening the end of globalization, and the rise of both China in the East and of the oceans all around us. Clips today are from Economic Update, Jacobin Radio, Inside Story from Al Jazeera English, Democracy Now!, Start Making Sense, and Who, What, Why, with additional members-only clips from The Bungcast and The Democracy Paradox. You've been writing about an American empire that is falling apart or is coming apart at the seams. How do you connect that argument you've been developing for some time with this war? Where where does the Ukraine war and what's happening fit into that larger story? Well, the the loss of economic hegemony, the the, the ruling elites are attempting to compensate for that loss with military hegemony. But I think if you look in the early years of any empire, they tend to use military force very judiciously and very carefully. Uh, but of course, uh, this is a classic example of how uh, military force is counterproductive. And, uh, and we look at all of the debacles that have been carried out by empire, go back to Vietnam, the, the, the wars in the Middle East, uh, the humiliating retreat from Afghanistan, the retreat under the Reagan administration from Lebanon. It's been one debacle after another. And yet they keep perpetuating these kinds of, of military fiascos and, and are not held accountable. That is a classic kind of sign of late empire. Right? And whether that is go back to ancient Rome or Greece or anywhere else, read Thucydides. I mean, so, and I think that that wielding of military force without actually calibrating it or understanding the, the geopolitical consequences is a symptom of late empire. And of course, we are also baiting China uh, in the South China Sea over Taiwan, uh, building security alliances with Australia to kind of hem China in. These are very, very foolish moves. You know, I'm, I'm reminded, and I would wonder if you could comment on it, this, the sanctions are a kind of, how shall I put it, economic warfare as an accompaniment to the military warfare. And so I look at it, you know, I'm an economist, and I say to myself, wow, the sanctions are like an enormous supply chain disruption. They're going to have, they already have, the, the effect of driving up the price of suddenly uh, broken trade agreements, suddenly broken delivery schedules. Prices are going up faster than they otherwise would have. They're, the inflation is lasting longer than folks had hoped it might. This is not really the result of the military war so much as the economic sanction warfare that's going on. And it makes you wonder whether the end result will be a level of economic suffering by all those afflicted by inflation running faster than wage increases, by the price of food literally making people starve, you're beginning to, to, to worry or wonder 
who's going to quote unquote win this so-called economic war? And it may surprise us. If you remember, Trump told us he would win the trade war. He clearly didn't. And now we're being told we're going to win this sanction war. That's not so clear to me either. How do you see it? Yeah, well, there are two winners. One is the arms industry. And we were all very foolishly in 1989 talking about the peace dividend and naive enough to believe it. But that was never going to happen. They were going to continue to uh, loot the state uh, the way they did during the Cold War. And the other is the fossil fuel industry. You can't talk about war without talking about markets. And so cut off Russian gas. Well, they've got to get it from the states. Uh, Europe doesn't like it because it's a lot more expensive. We can't pump oil out fast enough. And that gets into the whole issue of the blowback from climate, the climate crisis. So those are the only real winners. But yes, the we as people. And then, of course, remember, the Ukraine is a huge net exporter of wheat uh, in particular. So and all of this is going down the tube. So, yes. And then I think we should talk about the uh, by pressuring, by by imposing these draconian sanctions on Russia, uh, we are accelerating the search. I mean, what the other irony is that we push Russia into the arms of China. So the whole Sino-Soviet alliance, that was the whole Cold War was built around uh, putting up a wall between Russia and China. That, and, and, and of course, now we've created this coalition. And, and what they really want to do is uh, extract the dollar as the world's reserve currency uh, you're an economist, you know more than I do, but they're certainly moving in that direction. That's catastrophic for the U.S. economy. Go back and look at what happened when the uh, pound sterling in the 1950s was dropped as the world's reserve currency, plummeting in value. Uh, exports are exponentially uh, more expensive. Nobody wants to buy treasury bonds. Um, that That's a really catastrophic blow. So yes, I think many of the moves that Washington and, and NATO has taken potentially are very, very counterproductive for them. And that, exactly. And, uh, you know, if we had time, I'd go into this stuff with the dollar and the, and the fact that, that Russia is now demanding payment for oil in rubles, that they're linking the ruble to the gold value, which means they're putting a floor under the gold price. That shapes the United States. I mean, they're beginning to counter sanction, and we haven't even begun to understand where that's going to go on top of the first wave, you know, because with Russia and China, the counter-sanction problem becomes a very serious one, which seems not to have been calculated. But hence my question, how do you account for taking this step, these steps, when they could be as counterproductive as you say? Is this a sign of, of desperation? Are we watching a Hail Mary pass here? It's a sign of ineptitude. I mean, let's look at all of the policies, especially in terms of war, that the United States has embraced over the last few decades. It's just been disaster piled upon disaster. And yet for this tiny cabal, uh, arms manufacturers, the fossil fuel industry, private contractors, it, they make a killing. So what you've had is this kind of corporate coup d'etat. You service the profits and interests of these corporations at the expense of the nation and, frankly, at the expense of our democracy. And, and they're driving the country into the ground. And then if we talk again, go back to the climate crisis, the rest of the planet with us. So it's, it's utter ineptitude and corruption on the part of a global ruling elite, which is Julian expo uh, Assange exposed through the leaking of all sorts of documents, which is why they are 
psychologically and physically destroying him in Belmarsh Prison. I just came back from London. I was one of six guests invited to his wedding. And of course, when the six of us got to the gates of Belmarsh, none of us were allowed in, just part of the kind of sadism that uh, defines prison culture. I teach in a prison. So yes, it is. It, it's But the, again, that is a, a symptomatic of late empire, where you compound problems through rulers who are so corrupt and so visionless and so inept that you, in many ways, become your own worst enemy. So there's this argument that countries are less likely to hold dollar-denominated assets outside of their kind of safe, their geopolitical safe zone because of what's happened with the kind of weaponization of the central bank with Russia's foreign assets held in central banks in the West being frozen and seized. There is this argument that that's going to make a lot of states, particularly those that don't have good relations with the West, rethink the the assets and the currencies that they use. But there's another part to this as well, which is the, you know, a big part of of dollar hegemony is the global trade in in fossil fuels, um, because that's all denominated in dollars. Surely there is going to be some impetus here around this crisis to think we need to move away from like, you know, a lot of states, particularly in the global North, need to think about moving away from oil and some push towards clean energy. Now that's going to have to happen, whether it happens over the next decade or the next several decades. And that's obviously going to have an impact on the dominance of the dollar, but also on those kind of political economic relationships that you discuss in your book as well. And the kind of recycling of those petrodollars. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, Look, if if the relationship between Britain and the United States on the one hand, and and the Saudis and the UAE and Kuwait and all that on the other is is fundamentally about oil, strategic value of oil, economic value of oil, economic significance of oil revenue, then what happens when the oil stops being pumped? You know, what happens when the petrodollar wealth dries up? You know, what further use do those do, do, do the imperial powers have for those states? And that is a question that's no doubt worrying deeply. For, for those regimes who have, who have, who have been able to survive as monarchical regimes long into the 21st century, long past mm. when other monarchies have fallen, when democracy spread around the world, because they've been propped up by imperial powers, you know. So they've got a big problem there and a big worry. And yeah, how that breaks down in the future is going, is going to be really interesting. In terms of oil being traded in dollars, I mean, that's an arrangement that the Saudis came to with the Americans as part of the general deal. You keep us in power and we'll side with you economically, geopolitically, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if the Saudis were to move away, that, that's how you'd know, I think, that the Saudis were making a big geopolitical move. And I, it's one I'd be, I'd be shocked if they did it. If they did it, they, they would be being very stupid. But it would be a crossing of the Rubicon. If they were to say now, actually, our oil is going to be traded in a, in a basket of currencies, that would be a big slap to the Americans. And the fact that they haven't done it suggests that, as I say, this is all kind of for show what they've been doing the last few weeks. Mm. But, yeah, all, all this stuff is in flux. It, all, all this stuff is in flux as a result of what's been happening. And it just creates so much uncertainty in yeah. terms of, like, the the future of the, the, like, well, not just the world economy, but, like, the world, world politics in general. Mm. Mm. It does, as you say... Like if we do move towards a kind of more multipolar order, there are lots of risks 
and particularly risks around the kind of re-emergence of a new Cold War. And, you know, the Cold War was never obviously really cold. There was fighting that was taking place everywhere. There's fighting that's taking place now. But it also, and you wrote an article in Navarra, I think it was last year, talking about how when you get these kinds of us versus them conflicts, they tend to strengthen authoritarian leaders and like quasi-fascist movements yeah, in the global yeah. north yeah so that's a threat yeah you know as well as things like changes to global trade decline living standards all these different sorts of things yeah. but there are also potentially opportunities for states in the global south mm. to move beyond the washington consensus and actually think about well how can we play as you say play these states off against each other yeah. and try to strengthen our position what do you think on balance this is like you know an incredibly difficult question basically an impossible question to answer <laughs> but like on balance what do you think is the total effect of this shift going to be is it going to create opportunities for progressive change or is it going to end up being really regressive and you know just strengthening authoritarianism and fascism (laughs) i've got a stock answer to these questions my stock answer to the question what do you think will happen is always well it's up to us yeah Um, i i like that answer because that's what i'd say as well if someone asked me (laughs) well it it, i mean it is and we can talk about the, the the sort of general possibilities i think for the south there's dangers and opportunities you know, you are strengthened in, in a global environment where there's such huge disparities of power between South states and North states. You are strengthened by being in a multipolar world because you can play one side off against it, the other. But there is always a danger with that. You know, I mean, in the South, the po- those post-colonial elites weren't nice. Loads of mm. them were not good. You know, Fanon had loads to say about that. And, you know, the ones that sided with the, the West and the ones that sided the East could often be equally cruel and they could recruit global North power, could recruit superpower backing for their own quiet kind of nasty domestic politics. But, but you if- did also have this sense that, like, at least the global North had to, in some cases, be less awful and less purely harsh free market Washington consensus because yeah. there was this counterpower. Do you think yeah. that that's kind of going to reemerge? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the Washington consensus has, has, has it's lost... It's already dead, isn't it, really, in a lot of ways? Yeah, it's lost its legitimacy. I mean, even yeah. the, the IMF put out a paper, didn't they, 10 years ago, saying, mm. oh, we might have fucked up here. <laughs> this, yeah. this doesn't actually work. We just, look, we just ran the numbers and, oops, sorry, guys. <laughs> so it's lost its intellectual legitimacy. So, you know, that th- there might be more space. I mean, what we what would be great to see in the South is a democratic, non-aligned politics, you know, not mm. you know, rather than a cynical play one side off against the other, but to recruit superpower support for, for repressive and, and regressive domestic politics. But like a, a, a democratic, bottom-up, enlightened, non-aligned approach, you know, maybe in Chile, for example, we'll see yeah. that sort of thing emerge. In, in the North, I think it gives us a huge opportunity, to, a huge impetus to, sh- to, to push for green energy, mm. to remove energy from the geopolitical equation and to get energy security and an additional argument we can make in terms of decarbonisation. There, there is also this massive, massive danger of the politics of all this. I'm, I'm struggling to think of another word other than euphoria for the way certain people in the political discourse in the West have responded to the opportunity of a generational struggle against some official enemy, you know, 
that now we can stop talking about wokeness. Now we can stop talking about blah, blah, blah. We've got to focus on the battle against evil, where the good is, there the bad is. And this, this attempt to, because in Ukraine, you have got an authoritarian regime committing an act of imperialist aggression against a, a democratic country. But the way that's been exploited by Western politicians and commentators to act as though the battle between NATO and and Russia is a battle between democracies and the rules based international order versus autocracies is is dangerous because it will you know and any kind of increase in western chauvinism and self satisfaction and refusal to look at ourselves critically is going to produce a, it's a dangerous politics which is going to produce quite dangerous actions when we, we look back to the cold war and look at everything that was done in the name of you know freedom and democracy, whether it's carpet bombing Vietnam or backing death squads in Latin America, you know this, this, these grand narratives can be mobilised to excuse a lot of horrible stuff. Um, plus McCarthyism at home as well, where anyone who criticises NATO is deemed to be a kind of traitor or you know in league with our enemies. So this can turn quite nasty. And what we on the left, I think, have to do is formulate an analysis and an answer to all of that which manifests the fundamental values of anti-imperialism, anti-all imperialism, it's not just ours, but theirs too, but puts forward a kind of progressive agenda for a new internationalism. We, we spent four years talking a lot about domestic politics, the British left, in, during the Corbyn moment. I think we can talk a lot more now about international politics as well and trying to come up with a positive forward agenda for what for internationalism anti-imperialist internationalism and we can do that in in concert with you know comrades in in russia and elsewhere i couldn't agree more um and yeah i think coming back to how i opened if liberals think that this kind of clash of civilizations narrative is going to provide some respite from the decline of liberalism and the dominance of liberalism in the context of people literally being unable to heat their homes i think they have another thing coming Do you think it's now inevitable that the international order will reposition itself? I think uh, most definitely. Uh, not just international order, but in Europe as well. Keep in mind that for the past 30 years, we kind of tried to figure out how, what to do with Europe because we never really eliminated the dividing lines in Europe. But now this will be remilitarized as during the Cold War and the economies between Europe and Russia also be decoupled. So I think that... Uh, uh, also, globalization, as we've known it, is now officially over. Uh, I think it's especially uh, some of it's because of the sanctions against Russia as well. I mean, after the West seized the money from the Russian central bank, is after doing similar seizing similar money from Afghanistan, Iran, Venezuela. I think that the world is becoming much more skeptical of both the dollar and the euro. So I think the Russians, of course, they no longer want to trade in this. Uh, dollars or euros and we see that the rest of the world are kind of responding to this the indians are now wanting to buy energy in rupees the saudis are now considering to sell their energy in the chinese also in their ones and uh, also instead of sanctioning russia we see countries like china uh, stating that they're willing to work now to establish some kind of a parallel economic financial infrastructure that's not vulnerable to western sanctions so i think this is definitely a huge shift in the international system. It also displays how the West or NATO uh, and the rest of the world aren't necessarily on the same page. All right, we'll get into the whys and wherefores of all of that uh, in just a moment. But Nizar, first of all, Nizar Masari, do you think we were inexorably leading 
uh, to this moment. We had a series of events going back to the Twin Towers in 9-11, to the financial meltdown in 2008, to Brexit, to Trump. And now this, do you think it's been a, a gradual progression that, that's been building up to this moment? The gradual progression uh, is depends on the focus we give it. I think that this is there is a, this focus we're giving it, but I think that there is another focus: the growth of China and uh, the the pivot to the Pacific. And there is so what I notice in today's uh, news and in today's analysis is that uh, people who are reminiscent from the Cold War are reviving. The, the tensions and the, the hecticness of the years of the Cold War and bringing Russia as the main focus of international relations. Whereas if we look at uh, from the a broader picture, the, the shift is definitely towards the, the Pacific. The shift is towards uh, a competition between uh, West led by, uh, by the US and uh, and China and its uh, allies. So I see here Russia more as uh, a satellite, not a, a small satellite, but an important satellite, but more as a satellite uh, of China than really the main player. And I'm amazed at how many analysis are focusing on, China, on Russia as if the main topic is, uh, is uh, Russia. So, uh, and and I think that's the, the and the second point I want to make is that if we keep uh, when we keep focusing our attentions in international relations to uh, relations among states, we forget that some people are paying the price, and it's individuals, it's communities that are really really paying the high price of this uh, shift in power. So it's the the Ukrainians themselves, but it's the people uh, in around the world who are uh, who with uh, energy uh, prices uh, going up, with uh, uh, wheat uh, going uh, wheat prices going up, and this is provoking a lot of concern among a lot of people in the world. Not only about Ukraine, but about the, the survival of individuals uh, on top of the, the, the refugee crisis. So we need to bring our attention not only to focus our attention, not only on state-to-state -state relations, but also on the impact of these on real people, real individuals. Today's episode is sponsored by a new limited podcast series, Will Be Wild, named for the tweet that effectively launched the insurrection on January 6th at Trump's urging. Promoting the rally, he had tweeted, be there, will be wild. Now from the critically acclaimed podcast studios Pineapple Street and Wondery comes a new documentary series that shines a light on the human stories left out of the January 6th headlines and goes deep into the lives of people who took part in that day, the people who saw it coming, and the people who fear that the insurrection was just the beginning. If you missed it, there should already be a sample of the show in your Best of Left feed for you to check out. The sample tells the beginning of a story about the son who turned his father into the FBI as just one example of how this show is going beyond the headlines of the assault on American democracy. Will Be Wild is a close-up look at the four-year effort to bring autocracy to America and what the insurrection could mean for the future of our democracy. Because a failed and unpunished coup, they say is just a dress rehearsal. So follow Will Be Wild wherever you get your podcast. You can listen early on Amazon Music or early and ad-free by subscribing to Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts or the Wondery app. 
wanted to turn to Cheng Gang, the Chinese ambassador to the United States, appearing on CBS's Face the Nation Sunday. He was questioned by Margaret Brennan. Has Xi Jinping, your president, told Vladimir Putin to stop the invasion? Do you condemn it? Actually, on the second day of uh, Russia's military operation, President Xi Jinping did talk to President Putin. Uh, Was that their last Asking call? President Putin to think about resuming peace talks with Ukraine. And President Putin listened to it. And we have seen four rounds of peace talks uh, mm -hmm. you know, have happened. Let me continue. You know, China's trusted relations with Russia is not a liability. Actually, it's an asset in the international efforts to solve uh, the crisis in a mm -hmm. peaceful way. You know, and China is part of the solution is not part of the problem. Professor McCoy, can you respond to the significance of what the Chinese ambassador to the United States said? Of course. <clears throat> He's again kind of affirming what President Xi said in that meeting last Friday with uh, President Biden. In essence, that China is not going to rupture its relations with Russia. It's not going to apply pressure on Russia. It's not going to blame Russia. It's not going to uh, call the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine an invasion. Um, and it is going to affirm that Russia has legitimate security concerns in Ukraine that must be met. And that if China is going to do anything, it is going to apply its considerable international power and prestige to support Russia in establishing its security in Eastern Europe. Uh, <clears throat> what, what I think what's going on more broadly is that we're seeing a, a sense of extraordinary confidence from Moscow and Beijing that literally history, and more importantly, geopolitics is on their side. They believe that their alliance gives them such dominance, such power on the massive Eurasian landmass that they can prevail, that they can not only dominate the landmass, they can dominate international politics. In essence, they are pursuing a geopolitical strategy to break U.S. control over the Eurasian landmass and thereby break U.S. global power. They think that they are witnessing the birth, the historic birth of a new world order in which the great global hegemon, the United States, which has dominated the world for the past 70 years, in which its global power is broken and, it, and, and its dominance over Eurasia, something the United States has maintained since the start of the Cold War in the early 1950s, but that is coming also to an end. This is the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, talking about Biden's meeting with Xi Jinping on video phone call. The movement of, uh, of uh, China to align with Russia or to, um, uh, yeah, the movement of them to align with Russia or their, their proximity of moving closer together is certainly of great concern to us, as we have expressed. And we are not the only country that has expressed that concern, including many other members of the G7 have expressed exactly that concern. Uh, so this is part of the discussion. It has been an ongoing part of the discussion. Expect it certainly would be when the president goes to Europe uh, next week, but we're not in a place at this point to outline the specifics we're still discussing. 
So if you can talk more about Professor McCoy, what Biden threatened, um, is if it has an effect. Uh, you know, he is going to Europe this week. He's speaking with a lot of European nations today, then meeting in Brussels with other NATO members, then going to Poland to hold bilateral talks Friday and Saturday. Um, what this means for Russia and then for Russia and China. The, the United States is concerned, I think, in two areas. Uh, one, that uh, that China will provide uh, weaponry and financial support. And in fact, China can break the, the financial embargo that the United States is trying to impose upon Russia in order to restrain them in their invasion of Ukraine. And so what, what Washington is monitoring is flows of weapon and <clears throat> flows of, of a financial support from China to Russia. That's that's the United States is trying to restrain, uh, and that <clears throat> the weapons may have a, a, a short-term impact. The financial flows are a medium-term impact. That, that's the U.S. concern. But um, I think we need to sort of analyze the situation in dual tracks. One, focus on on the diplomacy, the military activity in Ukraine, the course of the war on the battlefield. Okay, that may or may not go Putin's way. But underlying that, there is this extraordinary confidence in Moscow and Beijing that the geopolitics of Eurasia are on their side, that because of their alliance and their dominant position in this great landmass that comprises 70% of the world's population and productivity, that, that it almost inevitably that they are going to emerge as the new centers of global power on the planet. And, and that, I think, is underlying their boldness uh, and their resistance to, to Washington's pressure. So we can, in, in, from their perspective, we can provide weapons, we can mount financial pressure, uh, we can even uh, uh, imp impact the, the situation on the battlefield by providing um, anti-tank missiles and, 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 uh, and handheld weapons that can, uh, uh, they can bring down, like Stinger missiles that can bring down Russian helicopters and aircraft. Um, uh, we can do all that, but but that is not material. That's not what's going to matter. They believe, because of the, the theory of geopolitics, that being the dominant powers in this great Eurasian landmass, that they can slowly break the controls that the United States has imposed over Eurasia since the start of the Cold War, and they can break U.S. global power, and they together can construct a new global order. Every global hegemon, and that's the word that Beijing and, and, and Moscow use, every global hegemon for the last 500 years, from the Portuguese to the Spanish, the Dutch, the British, the United States, and now the Chinese, have done one thing in common. They have all dominated Eurasia. The, their rise to global power, including the U.S. rise to global power after World War II, was accompanied by dominance over Eurasia. And decline of all of these global powers, including the United States, has been marked by their declining control over Eurasia. And together, uh, Beijing and Moscow are pursuing a strategy that I call, you know, push, push, punch. So they're pushing at these great chains of geopolitical control that the United States has ringed around Eurasia since the Cold War. Naval fleets air bases, um, mutual defense pacts. They're pushing slowly at the east and west ends of Eurasia 
hoping to strain and break those chains of control that the United States has imposed over Eurasia until in a succession of these punches, those chains of control snap, U.S. dominance over Eurasia comes to an end, and correspondingly, in the theory of geopolitics, U.S. global power also declines. Climate change, you argue, will cripple China. What will happen there? What specifically are the climate vulnerabilities of China? In China's development program, they have been sponsoring coal-fired electricity, and they're reliant on it as home. So that means that China is, is continuing to release greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. China and the United States between them account for 44% of all the emissions, of all the greenhouse gases, all right? Uh, and uh, China is committed to being, you know, um, uh, carbon neutral by, by 2060. That's way too late. So what's going to happen around 2050, uh, and this is according to sober scientific projections, is the rising seas are going to flood Shanghai. Shanghai, China's most powerful economic engine, a city of 18 million people, including the downtown, is going to be underwater. And the North China Plain, according to a, a, another very sober scientific study supervised by a professor at MIT, uh, they calculated that the North China Plain, which is currently home to 400 million people, and is in many ways the heartland of Chinese agriculture and industry, is going to become one of the least, if not the, 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 the least habitable places on the planet. Starting around 2060 or 2070, there are going to be hundreds, literally hundreds of extreme climate emergencies. Moreover, at around 2070, China is going to experience five, at least five instances of what's called 35 degree wet bulb temperature. Now, what's that? That's when the balance of heat and humidity is such that the human body cannot sweat. And a healthy human being at rest, just sitting, is dead in six hours. <laughs> and the North China Plain, along with Northern India, are going to be these two areas that are going to experience 35 degrees centigrade wet bulb temperature protracted periods. So that means that, that China is going to be afflicted by climate change. And as they're dealing with their coastal cities, basically underwater, some you can remediate, others you can't. And massive population movement to cope with these uninhabitable areas, China will have to withdraw from the world just as the United States is starting to withdraw today. I think we need to talk a little more about uh, the hundreds of millions of refugees who will be fleeing the effects of climate change towards the more habitable and wealthier nations. We're already seeing just the beginnings of this in Western Europe and the United States. You see this as bringing political disaster and social and economic crisis to much of the developed world over the next 30 years. Let's think back to the period between 2016 and 2018. The arrival of refugees in Southern Europe, Africans crossing the Mediterranean, Middle Easterners coming in from Turkey to Greece, and then Central Americans and Mexicans on the U.S. southern border. This produced a surge in vocal uh, right-wing populism, Britain's Brexit, uh, European ultranationalist parties, the election of Donald Trump, and how many people was that? 
If you add them all up, the Middle Easterners, the Africans, and the Central Americans, 2 million people, just 2 million people. By 2050, the World Bank estimates that there will be over 200 million climate change refugees. And the, the estimates are as high in other sources as 1.2 billion. All right. Now, these tides of humanity are not going to be moving by choice. The climate change is going to be so severe that these hundreds of millions of people are going to be uprooted from from vulnerable seashores, floodplains, desert fringes. They're going to be forced to flee to survive to that narrow strip of the earth across the northern temperate zone that will remain habitable in the second half of the 20th century, 21st century. The, the world is then going to be faced with a, a very real choice. If we don't develop some kind of formal glo of global governance to deal with this, this tide of humanity, then the world is going to collapse into all kinds of petty, endemic, brutal wars over water and food and habitable area. The alternative is an improved form of global governance with control over three critical areas. First of all, if any nation by 2050 is still emitting, then they would be compelled by a, a, a more sovereign global governance to shift to alternative energy. Uh, second, uh, the resettlement of these hundreds of millions of climate change refugees would not be a choice. There would have to be an empowered person, sort of like an empowered UN High Commissioner for Refugees that could simply assign refugees to specific countries that have space and resources. And third and finally, and this is something that's been much talked about at the Glasgow Climate Conference, there needs to be a systematic transfer of resources for climate change remediation and for hunger relief in the tropical and, and desert areas that are going to be hammered particularly hard by climate change. And this is going to require if, you know, a, a, a yielding of a portion of national sovereignty as we now see it and a reorganization of the UN into a more empowered and also a more equitable organization. You end your new book, To Govern the Globe, with an apology. I'm not sure I've ever seen that before. Tell us about that. My generation has been profligate. You know, we enjoyed America's absolutely unprecedented prosperity. Uh, we bought motor vehicles. We drove. We heated our homes with fossil fuels. We didn't take the growing warnings from Rio and Kyoto and Paris seriously. Well, until just now, until California erupted in fire last summer. And so we've left a, a terrible legacy for the young people. And the dates we've been talking about, okay, 2050 is one of the dates we've been talking about. Well, I'm going to be gone. But my students, the 18 and 19-year-olds in my classrooms, you know, they're going to be in middle age. They're going to have children, and they're going to be trying to deal with this world that we've left them. And Certainly, they're going to reach old age at 2080, 2090, uh, if they're so lucky. And the, the, if the UN Secretary General in his 2019 statement is correct, that the world might have actually 3.9 degrees centigrade global warming by 2100, that is going to be a, a very terrible legacy that we've left our, our, our grandchildren. Should we be surprised 
at the degree to which the historical decisions that have been made for hundreds of years, 700 years in the case of, of what you write about, have a direct impact on the problems and the issues that we're facing today? Sure, to be surprised, no. Uh, the question is not uh, to be surprised, to express outrage uh, or condemnation in my case. There's much to be outraged about and much to condemn. But the, the effort that I'm trying to make in that book to govern the globe is to try and tease out the key historical trends over the past 700 years, understand how they, they made our present and how they're likely to, to shape our future. And, you know, historians are, are really good at um, figuring out uh, the story when it's all over. Uh, any historian worth his or her salt, when it's all over, can tell you not only what happened, but they can tell you with magisterial certainty almost incontrovertible certainty why it happened just that way and no other. But when it comes to the future, uh, we're all dwarfed. We're all at the feet of our muse Cleo, rendered virtually powerless. All of our analytic paradigms break down. So what I, what I was able to do in this book, uh, which does track the succession of empires, global hegemons, and their world orders over the past 700 years, was to try and use not historical science, but environmental science. And environmental science, if you read the, the detailed reports, and they're very difficult and quite technical in journals like Nature, the one thing that separates environmental science from almost any other form of social scientific or pure scientific inquiry is that environmental science is all about the future. It's a, it's a science of prediction. And when you read their reports, <clears throat> they predict not like economists, like what's going to happen in the current administration over the next year or two or three years. They're trying to figure out what's going to happen over the next 80 or 100 years. The, all their projections go right to the end of 21st century. And they all have these, these lines on high probability, medium probability, low probability, and all kinds of statistical computations. So what I did to figure out the, the, the shape of the present and the way that present is leading us into a, a, a very troubled future, was to simply overlay the historical patterns of empires and world orders on top of these quite scientific environmental projections, and then see what the convergence of the two brings. And <clears throat> what I see basically is the following. First, the uh, Washington's world order uh, is coming to an end, and there are a couple of reasons for this. First of all, it's been in power for about 70 years, which is pretty long for any kind of global system. But more particularly, American decline has been something of a bipartisan project in Washington, D.C. Back in 2001, elites in both Republican and Democratic parties decided that American power was so overwhelming, was so overweening, that the future was ours. It was the end of history. All the world was going to be swept away into a single pattern of liberal democracy and global capitalism with open borders and free world trade. Okay, that was the future of all humankind. It was it was preordained. We were so powerful. We won the Cold War. We were the, the sole superpower. We were the most powerful global hegemon in the history of the planet. Okay, and so <clears throat> we figured we'll admit China into the World Trade Organization and make them an equal in the international economy with all the, the privileges that accrue. And China, you know, which has 20% of the world's population, they're going to play by American rules. They're going to become a nice democracy and a capitalist economy. They're going to follow our rules, okay? And by 2014, 
a couple things happened. First of all, China's economic progress was absolutely unprecedented. During America's rise to global power uh, from 1900 to 1950, we increased uh, uh, our, our share of the, the global economy at the rate of 2% 2, 2 a decade. Uh, uh, China inc has increased since, since 2001 its share of the world economy at, at an extraordinary, unprecedented 5% per decade. So that by 2014, China had $4 trillion in foreign exchange reserves. And about that time, uh, President Xi Jinping announced something called the Belt and Road Initiative, which was an attempt to link the whole of the vast Eurasian landmass from the Atlantic all the way to the Pacific by a grid of pipelines, rails, and roads that would create an integrated market, and although he never said it, and as if by natural law, commerce, profit, and ultimately geopolitical power would flow through this infrastructure across the Eurasian landmass to Beijing and make them the new epicenter of world power. And, and uh, you know, around about 2013-14, the Obama administration began to figure it out and began the process of trying to, to challenge China. The, the Trump administration followed uh, with, with its trade war, and the Biden administration is, of course, continuing the confrontation. So that was the, the first thing we did. The second thing we did, which is another bipartisan disaster, as we, again, at this apex of our power, we invaded Afghanistan uh, after the 9-11 attacks, and we took a, a war of choice. We invaded Iraq, and we tried to insert ourselves, this was a neoconservative project, into the, the greater Middle East, build a kind of, you know, imperial capital in the green zone in Baghdad, and transform the Arab world. And the economic logic for this is we would get a permanent hold on the world's oil reserves. And so, in effect, we invested about $8 trillion in inserting ourselves into the Middle East and gaining control of oil just at the point when oil was joining cordwood and coal in the dustbin of history. Okay? A gross geostrategic miscalculation. Meanwhile, China, with its $4 trillion, was laying down that that grid of infrastructure uh, uh, across the Eurasian landmass, road, rails, and oil and gas pipelines, and building 40 modern ports around the rim of Eurasia, expanding its military, cutting the circles of steel that Washington had laid down around Eurasia to dominate that critical epicenter of global politics during the Cold War. In effect, China was well on its way to becoming the world's great global hegemon. So by 2030, all the sources indicate, uh, and these are short-term projections, and they're, 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 therefore, reasonably accurate. Um, uh, back in 2012, the National Intelligence Council said that by 2030, China would be the world's economy, world's largest economy by far. The international accounting firm, PricewaterhouseCoopers, published a report that says by 2030, China's economy will be 50%, at least 50% larger than the U.S. economy. And since China and the United States spend roughly 2 and 3% respectively of their gross domestic product on the military, that means that China's military procurements will grow ever larger than America's. They're already ahead in a number of critical areas like satellite communication security and, uh, uh, and anti-missile defenses. Um, and uh, by 2030, it's clear that China... Uh, economy will be larger than ours. They'll move ahead in critical areas like artificial intelligence. Um, they'll have a, they'll be a, a military peer overall. 
And in a number of critical technological areas, where China's emphasizing military that will be ahead of us. Uh, in short, it'll be over for American global hegemony. The only question, of course, will be whether the American liberal world order survives. We've just heard clips today, starting with Economic Update, speaking with Chris Hedges about U.S. militarism that is a classic symptom of late empire. Jacobin discussed the war in Ukraine, throwing a wrench into the world order. Inside Story from Al Jazeera English discussed the shifting world order toward China. Democracy Now! looked at the geopolitical importance of Eurasia. Start Making Sense pointed out China's vulnerability to climate change and the destabilizing effect of climate refugees, and Who, What, Why applied environmental sciences to geopolitical history to attempt to predict climate-driven political changes. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from the Bungcast discussing the green energy transition and the future of consumption. And Democracy Paradox looked more at the decline of the liberal international order and the rise of illiberalism. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support to request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut calling in in 45-something or other uh, cryptocurrency. And your personal experience about being scammed with the pyramid scam and blah, blah, blah. Interesting. I never did that myself. But when my son was in kindergarten, they started these sticker clubs. And guess what? You got a list of five kids to send stickers to, and then you could send them to them and wait for the thousands and thousands of stickers to come pouring back. Well, him and I discussed what a pyramid scheme was, and that although it would seem like a great thing and everything else, but it was it was fascinating that the the parents and, and it wasn't officially a PTA type of thing, but I mean clearly. I mean, look, this was my hopes, right? My hopes was that there was someone that was going to teach their son or daughter how to run a pyramid scheme, like how to take advantage of other people. Because, you know, in the Republican town I live in, it would only support the, the infrastructure that they and the political aspects that they already have here. Well, if that's really what happened, then, then I understand it, you know. But I guess I inoculated my kids right from the beginning just by discussing that. And then we went to Target and, and took that $5 and... and and bought a bunch of stickers so that he didn't have to go out and buy envelopes and stamps. So anyway, that's my uh, two cents worth of inoculating my kids. Anyway, keep wearing your mask, stay safe, and stay awesome. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Now, Alan, who we just heard from, was responding to a story that I had told, a personal story, about how I learned the 
nearly incomprehensible math of pyramid schemes. Mine was an email marketing scheme. Alan mentioned stickers, which actually sounds vaguely familiar to me. Like I may have heard of that when I was a kid, but never taken part. Uh, I, I just did a quick search for the sticker scheme and actually came up with a more modern version of it, which is the book exchange. And this is being marketed to parents. And I, I think it's actually not extremely predatory. It's just nonsensical. So the idea is you give away one book into the book exchange and you pass on the chain letter to six friends. And they, of course, pass on the chain letter to six friends. And all 36 of those people on your downline will send you books in return. So the same principle, the same pyramid dynamic. I What I've concluded after reading about people doing either these book exchanges or the sticker exchanges is, you know, I, I used to think that people who started pyramid schemes all knew what they were doing and were consciously out to scam people. But I've been reading these people posting on the internet being excited about the idea of getting a bunch of free books or a bunch of free stickers and then went on to say, like, I've been inspired to start my own. And I thought, oh, no, that means that probably a lot of people who start pyramid schemes don't realize themselves that they're starting a pyramid scheme. They've like heard about it and think, yeah, let's start that and it'll be great for everyone. You know, even the even the sort of big, uh, you know, big ones that make the news. You know, I watched the LuLaRoe documentary a few months back and I would absolutely believe that those people didn't understand that their business model was a pyramid and depended on the population of the earth being infinite. I think after some time went by, they absolutely should have figured it out and then, you know, maybe transitioned from believing their own nonsense to realizing it was nonsense, but feeling like they couldn't do anything but continue to push the lie. Like, maybe that's what happened. But, you know, when it started, did they know? I don't know. I find myself coming back more and more often to Hanlon's razor, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. You know, I, the fundamental problem here is that math is hard for people. You know, we're not particularly wired for math. And so when it gets too complicated, we tend to just switch off and believe whatever someone tells us the answer is. This is why the best piece of math education I ever got was in fourth grade as we were being allowed to use calculators in class for the first time. My teacher was warning us that calculators can lure you into thinking that whatever answer they give is the correct answer, but obviously that's not true. You know, if you input something wrong, it'll spit out the wrong answer. So the warning the teacher gave was that it was extremely important to understand the math well enough to know when the calculator was wrong. You don't have to be able to get the exact right answer in your head. You just have to know when it's clear that something has gone wrong. If there's a book exchange, for example, where everyone offers one book and everyone receives 36 books in return, it should be clear to any fourth grader learning to use a calculator that the math just doesn't add up. But telling people to share with six people, who will also share with six people, all of whom will send you a book, makes it sound like a simple six times six multiplication problem. And that's how easy it is to obscure the truth with a little bit of misdirection and the use of math because people don't like math. 
which is also why it's so easy to lie and mislead with statistics. I mean, getting back to Hanlon's razor, misrepresenting data is easy enough to the point that I would believe many of the people peddling false ideas through math in the media don't even realize they're doing it. They just don't understand the data. They're misrepresenting it to themselves before they write it down or talk on television and misrepresent it to the rest of us. I mean, I, I recently watched a YouTube video breakdown of the racist book, The Bell Curve, that's been used for decades to claim that black people are statistically less intelligent than white people, among other debunked claims. And one of the major conclusions in the video is that the author of the book genuinely seems to not be able to understand the math that he himself is using in the book. The point being, it may not actually be a racist hatchet job. The author and his defenders might just be too dumb to realize that what they're saying is wrong. I don't know about you, but I am sick to death of the never-ending are they dumb or are they evil debate and sort of take comfort every time it can be shown that stupidity is the likely cause of terrible opinions and policies, not evil. Though, I mean, I think Charles Dickens had some strong warnings about the doom that stems from ignorance, so I guess it's slightly cold comfort. Anyway, as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our patreon page or from right inside the apple podcasts app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes all through your regular podcast player also, don't forget to join our Best of the Left Discord community to discuss the show, the news, other podcasts, interesting articles, videos and books, anything like that, and continue to send in your recommendations directly to me. If you don't want to join on Discord, just send interesting recommendations of things you found particularly interesting. Jay should know about this. Send me those things. You can tweet at us. You can send me an email whatever you like. And links for joining our Discord community are in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.